Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Welcome everybody. Thanks for coming to Wednesday Night Networking. Um, we decided to try this about a month ago now and it's been quite successful. I've been on some webinar conferences this winter already and they were so impersonal. Um, I was a speaker and I didn't see any faces. I didn't see any pictures. I didn't even know there were people on the other end. And I, I think that the networking at conferences is one of the most important parts of a conference. Probably half the education you get going to a conference or a seminar is, you know, chit-chatting with the people uh, at coffee break and, and uh, lunchtime. So we decided we're just going to do networking and we're going to have a different topic every week. If we go off topic, that's okay. We don't, we don't really care. We just decided to have a, a topic to start with. And uh, if, if triggers a, another direction, that's great. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll try and uh, keep it flowing. We've got a few sponsors that we got to kind of look at here first. Um, number one sponsor, I guess, is us because we're doing this for uh, to try and get this information out here. So we're, we're a sponsor with Greener Pastures Ranching. A little bit about us, I guess, just as an intro. Um, my name is Steve Kenyon from Greener Pastures Ranching. And uh, we do a custom grazing operation here uh, near Busby, Alberta. And uh, we just thought that this is a, a great opportunity to share some information and, and get, get people together and networking. So um, I guess what we offer, my wife does some really good videos. You just saw one of them. Um, she's got a little bit of a video production company she started up through our farm. So if anybody's looking to do some promotions, then uh, give her a call. It's at Paradigm Productions. Um, I'll put a link in the chat here soon. And then I guess the greener pastures too, for the winter, I do seminars and conferences and, and uh, we teach schools normally. Uh, but with this year with COVID down, uh, we're not doing as many of those. I'm doing more one-on-one uh, -on -one webinars, like on-farm uh, on consulting. We do economics and finance management. Uh, we can look at cell design or pasture management, uh, grazing charts, whatever. Um, if anybody's interested, they could look into that too. The Gateway Research Organization is our sponsor. They are actually uh, paying for our extra speakers to come in. So Matt is here today. Um, we'll talk about him in a second. But uh, thanks to the uh, Gateway Research Organization, that's how we get the extra speakers to come in and, and uh, be a part of this. So that's a big thank you to them. Um, Gray Wooded Forge Association is also here. Um, Brenda is the, our host today. So um, that's where she's from. Uh, both of them are applied research associations within Alberta here. And I know there's other associations in other provinces and, and other states in the U.S. or wherever that are not-for-profit organizations that bring in speakers and put on conferences. And, and these groups are very instrumental in the education in our, in our province, that's for sure, and I'm sure everywhere else. Uh, I'm going to say in the last 20 years, probably 95% of my education has come from these groups. Uh, why? Because they bring in, you know, they put on these conferences and bring in some real powerhouse speakers um, and they do experiments. I mean, the, the whole idea behind the Applied Research Association is they're out there trying different things and making mistakes so that, you know, maybe as a farmer, we don't make as many mistakes. So um, I've been involved with Grow on and off for 20 years as a director and, and as a member. So um, very important. Um, grateful to have these groups in our area and, and uh, by all means support them become a member, maybe even become a director on the board and, and help guide the direction of some of these. Because these are not-for-profit organizations that are farmer-led and uh, are doing research for farmers. So I uh, highly recommend everybody to become a part of, part of them. Brenda, do you have anything to say about Gray Wooded Forge Association? 
Well, we've been around for a while, Steve, and we're just really grateful to be here tonight. I, I thank you for the invitation. I hope you invite us back again. Um, uh, I think Girl's doing a great job. I think this is a really nice idea, and I wish you luck with it. Awesome. Thanks. So Brenda's going to be our, our powerhouse here tonight. She has the power to mute, mute her boot, so you got to be nice to her. <laughs> I, I'm going to be nice to her because I don't want to get booted, that's for sure. Our special guest tonight is uh, Matt Van Steeland. Uh, I call him Dr. Matt. Um, he's a uh, veterinarian uh, from Manitoba, and uh, he has jumped on the regenerative agriculture bandwagon. He drank the Kool-Aid, whatever you want to call it, but he's a great representative of regenerative agriculture in our industry, and I'm uh, very happy to have him here today. So, um, Matt, you want to give a little introduction about yourself and who you are? Hi, everybody. I'm here from southwestern Manitoba. I'm a cow-calf producer and we do some yearlings as well. I, I did go to vet school back in my younger years and now I've started ranching full-time and just trying to do a better job of it every day and that's why I've kind of jumped on the regenerative train. Cool, thanks Matt. So tonight's topic is having a regenerative mindset. It's a, it's a big change. There's been some eye-opening opportunities in my time at conferences, you know, big speakers that came in that basically, you know, mind-blowing, a total switch in paradigm, total switch in thinking. And I think that's a, 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 an important part of what regenerative agriculture is, right? We're, we're trained, we're taught, we're, however you want to say it, to do this regular everything that agriculture has always done. Right, we do this. It's it's like following a recipe. You do this, 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 and this, and this is what'll happen. Regenerative agriculture is not a recipe. Okay, we have to monitor and observe and change and adjust, and and it's a totally different way of thinking. So um, we're going to talk about some different, maybe some quotes or ideas that that have changed our way of thinking uh, over the years tonight, and then hopefully we can spark some questions and hear some, you know, other mind blowing. Uh, occurrences from uh, from the crowd out there too so so Matt what do you think of when you when uh, you hear the term a mindset of regenerative agriculture what do you think when I think about mindset one of the first things that comes to me is I, many of you are probably familiar with Dwayne Beck from the Dakota Lakes Research Farm down in South Dakota and he talks about a brain transformation and I think that's really what it is, is we have to change the way we think about how soil works, how agriculture works, how we're able to do things in a way that it works with the ecosystem. How we can do that can be quick or it can be slow and, and it can be big and it can be small and it's different for everybody. And that's the cool thing with the regenerative mindset is that it's very broad. And it's, um, it can be as, as big as starting with a stockpiled grass is a great way to, to start with it. Just start doing something different on our operation that is going to allow us to work with the biology and the natural systems instead of trying to use um, inputs. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Um, so... If you guys have any questions about this or you have any ideas about this, by all means, start putting, putting them into chat now. Um, we're just going to kind of talk about this topic until we get some questions. So if you guys want to start doing some questions, the uh, sooner the better. Um, don't be shy because usually by the end, 
you're not going to get any questions in because we run out of time. So if you got a question burning in your back of your mind, jump on it right away. One of the biggest mind-blowing things that ever happened to me was, well, probably a couple of them. Uh, one was from uh, Dr. Christine Jones when she came and spoke in Alberta. And I went and listened to her down in Olds, I believe. And just blew my mind because I never even thought about it before. The difference between modern agriculture, where we grow plants from the soil. And after listening to her, I said, that's wrong. It's, it's not right. What we need to do is we need to grow soil from the plants, right? It's a completely different way of looking at it. Um, to explain that a little bit, modern agriculture, we take some seed and some fertilizer and we put it in the, into the soil and then we grow a plant and we harvest it and take it away. So we're constantly growing this plant from the soil and it's using up nutrients and taking it away. So we have to replace it. So we're literally growing plants from the soil. Whereas with regenerative agriculture, we're taking plants, we're building an ecosystem with, you know, added, you know, fixing the water cycle, bringing in biology, right? Encouraging an environment that bacteria and fungus and yeast and all those critters can work in. And then they make their own fertility. And we take, the plants actually take carbon from the air through photosynthesis um, push that through the root systems as exudate into the soil and we add carbon to the soil. So we're literally growing soil by using the plants. So it was a completely mind blowing experience for me because this is opposite of what everything I've ever been told, everything that I was taught in, you know, agriculture college. And it's so, it's so right, <laughs> right? That's what we need to do is we need to build soil. Uh, Matt, what do you, you got any mind-blowing things that you had? Um, no, Christine Jones is great. She, I was able to see her. She, we had her through the Manitoba Grazing Club at uh, MBFI, which is a, a small research organization just north of Brandon, Manitoba. And she did a presentation there, which was pretty eye-opening. And then I was able to see her also at Derek Axton's place. She was, she did a presentation and, one of the things that really stuck out for me from Christine was the phosphorus cycle that she spoke about and how I guess I always thought that the same as everybody else, I guess, is that they're, they're, we're mining the phosphorus from the land and, and every bale of hay we take or every flake of grain that we export, we're, we're pulling this phosphorus and, and we're mining it what the deeper picture is, is, is that there's a, a cycle to these minerals. If we have a healthy soil ecosystem with a healthy fungi and phosphorus bacteria that are able to work with the fungi and mobilize this, and there's a whole um, ecological soil food web and process, but we're actually able to, there's a whack load of it down there in almost all soils especially in, in the prairies of Western Canada. And if we have the ecosystem to bring it to the, make it plant available, we don't need to be trucking it in from all over the world. Um, we just need to, to build it. And then when we, when we get a plant available, we need to cycle it, that we can keep it in the system. And that, that was one of the big eye openers for me from Christine is, is that just how much is actually down there. And then as we, uh, producers that are able to build the biology in, in their soil 
how much more availability that that nutrient has. Um, and, and Gabe Brown is one, if you listen to some of his speeches about how many minerals that he's been able to mobilize and, and Christine talks about a lot of, a lot of different things, but the, the nitrogen cycle also is, it works similar to the phosphorus that we, we can pull it from the air. If we have the biology, like we don't need to be burning a whole bunch of petroleum to, to bring it in. So that, that, she, she she really got me thinking um there's i'm sure there's lots of other things that i'm forgetting but that that was one of the biggest takeaways i had from christine jones yeah the the phosphorus thing is a is a big deal it's there's lots there it's just not available and what we need to make it available is actually the mycorrhizae fungi um it's really good at grabbing getting a hold of phosphorus and bringing it to the plant so that, that biology in the soil is so important um you you build the biology um, the, the other phrase that I, I use quite often is if it's not about adding fertility, it's about building biology. If we can build the biology in our system, we don't need to add fertility. I haven't brought in any fertility. I haven't hauled any manure in over 20 years. Um, we don't need it. Uh, it's our industry that's pushing that all the time that says we have to have, you know, be buying this fertilizer all the time. Brenda, you got a couple of questions on the way here for us? I certainly do. Uh, your first question is going to be from David Watsney. Let me just get him up. He's been primed and he, yeah, he has a question about um, stockpile grazing. Hi, I live in West Central Saskatchewan and I've been playing around with trying to get some stockpile grazing going. I'm just wondering if anybody knows what's out there that's been successful. I've tried a few different cocktails and they haven't been the greatest. They haven't been able to carry much load. Um, maybe I'm planting them too late because it's usually August when I'm planting them. Um, just looking for some advice, I guess, or yeah. So you're looking for something to graze in the wintertime? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> okay, so definitely and, uh, if, if you're planting in August, you don't have much growth from there, right? For the wintertime growth. Um, are right. you planting it into a crop field or just into your pastures or what do you? I've done both. I've, I've planted it. Actually, I've planted some in July. I just did a, did a broadcast into a standing crop and then I harvested the crop, but nothing really came underneath. And I've also done it into like a summer follow because I do everything I do is organic. I'm not adding any fertilizers or anything. So I don't know if I'm missing out on some nutrients and therefore it's not coming up very good or yeah. Okay. Well, I guess the, the, the only experience I have with that is, I mean, I've done a, a cover crop uh, into a canola stubble a couple of years ago, but I did it in early June, right? One of the, one of the factors that I found in growth in, in just about any plant is the day length. Anything that you're seeding after June 21st, you're not going to get very much growth on, right? It just, the, the plants uh, start to, to figuring out that your daylight's getting shorter and they want to reproduce as fast as they can. So they're going to grow quickly, be, they're going to be short and they're going to try and reproduce before the killing frost, right? That's in our environment. We've got a short season. If I can get something seeded before, you know, definitely get it established and growing well before June 21st, our longest day of the year, then I get way more production. So um, I know that's not um, 
quite the question you were asking, but uh, I haven't done a lot of experiments seeding in, in August. Uh, we've got one field this year, last fall, that I'm taking over a grain field um, with a neighbor. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to graze it for four years, but he seeded it down to winter wheat in August or September. Uh, so it came up about this tall before the killing frost. So we're going to graze that in the spring. Now his benefit was he had that living root in the soil in the fall, which is going to help his soil. Um, but next year, then we're going to come in and graze it. So very new at this still, we're just playing with this, this uh, idea with a grain farmer and we'll see. Um, but Matt, do you have anything to add to that? In all of this regenerative thing, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned, and I've spent a lot of money in silly ways to learn it, unfortunately, just like everybody else, you learn by as much from the failures as the successes. Know your context. You got to know your context. We're in Western Canada. We've got a spring heavy growing season. August can be very sketchy for moisture. If the only, I'd be pretty limited on what I'd want to see late in this environment, the, the winter cereals, possibly some brassicas. Um, if you're looking for something that's going to winter kill, maybe just oats or barley, um, something fairly cheap and simple. What I think the solution is in this environment for stockpiled annual grazing is full season cover crops. So I'm talking seeding it at a traditional seeding time, you know, in, in from May 10th to June 10th and pick species that are going to stand. Um, sorghum is one that will stand. It needs to be seeded a little later. Uh, corn will stand. You can use some of the brassicas that won't bolt. Uh, collards is one that I've had fairly good luck with and it will stay fairly leafy. Hairy vetch will stay uh, fairly green. It will, it'll lodge a bit, but it will stay green. We've got some cattle grazing on a hairy vetch field currently, um, some replacement heifers, and, and it's, it was green yesterday. Uh, I wish I had a picture I could show you. It looked almost like it's such a nice contrast with a little skiff of snow. I think that there's possibility for sh shoulder season cover crop, and what I mean is like if you have a summer fall or in an organic system, or if you uh, take off early spring seeded wheat or something, we can seed covers uh, first of August. And if we get the moisture, they, we can have pretty tremendous growth out there, but uh, it's the reliability for, for my money, for the putting dollars down for cover crops, I would just go full season. If you're sowing something that won't stand, just swath it. Swath it when it's ready to be harvested, lay it down, and then hopefully have species in that polyculture that are going to green up between the swaths and that the cattle can have the swaths as well as the, the green. Uh, uh, I have uh, Steve on the line uh, asking a similar question. He's asking about regenerative agriculture in the, on the field crops. Hi, did you, say, did you say Lee? Yes. Okay, yeah, sorry, it's a girl. Uh, it's okay. I, I it's a boy spelling. That's all right. I got four boys of my own, but I'm the only girl around. So yeah, this was actually more just a question for discussion. I've never been a grain farmer myself. I grew up on a small cattle farm that is grass-fed. Just my family hasn't quite got on board with all the um as much of regenerative as I would like, but I think when we have the bigger discussions, 
with other farmers and other people in the public, the one that I, I feel like I can't answer is those bigger crops. So like maybe those grain crops and how to do those in a regenerative way. I still like my bread. I don't want to give up um, that, you know, um, and I know you were just kind of talking, Steve, you were just starting maybe to work with a grain farmer and how you can use animals alongside that. So I'm just kind of curious how to, those bigger crops, like I totally understand what um, you're doing and we do a bit of that here and there, but more of the big crops than that. Okay, I'm gonna let Matt try and tackle that one first. I've got a couple of answers for you. I do, I'm excited about them, but I'm gonna let Matt hit, hit that one first. What do you think, Matt? I think it all comes down to energy. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to grow annual grains and to keep them growing on land that the land wants to go through succession. The land, to put land into canola, wheat, soybean, oats as monocrops, the land doesn't want to stay like that. You have to do disturbance constantly. Now, whether that's um, what's become fairly common in Western Canada with the high use of uh, synthetic inputs and direct seeding with shank system, um, minimum, till not full tillage, but uh, like the tillage still with the shank, but the land doesn't want to stay like that. So it's taking a lot of work to put it like that. What we need to do is instead of putting the energy to the plants through inputs, we need to do it through the current solar energy or recently stored solar energy through biological systems. So ways that we can achieve this, growing cover crops to try to sequester some nutrients. Now that the easiest way I think to cash flow those cover crops is to graze them. Um, that's going to take a little convincing for the average cash cropper to realize that that's part of the solution for the, is to get the cattle on the land, to get the biology back into the soil uh, and let the, the feed of the livestock cash flow that land for that cover crop season or graze follow, I think Steve was calling it this summer on some of his posts, uh, which was interesting. Um, I mean, on our prairies, grazing used to be common all the time. The other thing I think that we're really missing on our on our annual land for cash cropping is perennial rotation. I think that that's something we in Western Canada should be doing. We, we can't think that we're going to continue doing what we're doing with our annual cropping in perpetuity. We, it takes a tremendous amount of energy and we need to sequester the energy with the sun and with our biology that will they'll do it for us we just have to build the systems for them so uh it, forage seed with with grazing or with some type of a uh a hay and grazing mix system or something to cash flow it on those grain acres to try to get a living root because that's what we're, you're really missing the, the way to get that energy and the biology is living plants and realistically, when we're seeding mid-May and then the plant is being combined in August and how much, how many days of photosynthesis are we actually getting? The, the system that we've evolved into with commercial grain farming is, it it's, uses an incredible amount of artificial energy. And that is, I think, the issue with doing it regeneratively is that's got to change. Simple as that. 
So I have a I have a question from someone who can't um, uh, can't ask it herself. She uh, she can't unmute herself or start her video. Her name's Laurel Ann. Uh, she wants to uh, know uh, from Matt. Has your perspective on animal health been changing along with your introduction to generative regenerative principles? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. My I think anybody that's a lifelong learner which is something you have to be if you're if you're a regenerative farmer or, or a student of regenerative ag, you have to be a lifelong learner. And yeah, my my perspective on animal health is is constantly evolving. Healthy soils produce healthy plants. Healthy plants have high levels of minerals and vitamins. Healthy plants produce healthy animals. We can prevent our animals from getting sick by managing them. If we don't put animals in dust, they probably won't get pneumonia. If we don't let animals drink dirty water in the spring that's full of uh, fecal material or urine, they have a lot less chance of getting scours. It's th that type of stuff is fairly common sense. It does take a mindset change. When you take animals out of a conventional system and you start moving them to regenerative, their health improves. Like. I guess where I grew up, they call it vitamin grass in the spring. Like when you get animals out there on green grass, you just can see the benefit of that nutrition for them. And I think it's the same for all of our animal species. I think like I raise my own broilers in the yard. I have a little um, Salton style chicken coop and I feed them table scraps and a little bit of barley um, and they're delicious and and I got a hog from my friend Dominic and 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 my friend Curtis I've gotten hogs from both of them and and they're pasture raised and it's delicious it's so, so amazing and I I think it, it has I mean if you one place to look if you're interested in that is Fred Provenza he wrote a book called Nourishment I haven't quite made it all the way through I'm about three quarters of the way through but it we have very little understanding of the secondary metabolites in some of these plants and in how much power that has for the health of our animals. And then when they produce healthy meat proteins, how much benefit that has for our health. Um, you can look at the declining uh, levels of minerals and foods like that's fairly well documented since the 1940s in a lot of our uh, commercially available foods how much of the minerals are are quite a bit less and 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 it's it's been progressive over time we can change that with these biological systems so i have cool. another question online i think this one's for both of you it's from connor um connor i'm going to unmute you now and your video is up and ready to go yeah hi connor hey connor um so i don't know if that question of aaron's was asked it was he was asking a question I'm sure it'll be asked but um it was a follow-up to it more or less um I guess Matt for you um what's your next big goal um what are you looking to looking to do on your farm or on in your uh mindset are things changing the way you're looking at things or or something like that for the future I, how much time do you got Connor <laughs> I got could see your short-term and long-term goals i guess but i got more ideas than i have manpowers <laughs> yeah need, need some workers to implement some but uh, <laughs> for us like we're we were a fairly a medium-sized farm 
So some of this, and we were fairly spread out. We have a lot of land in, in we have a couple blocks, but a lot of land scattered. And I haven't been able to bring full regenerative practices to all the acres. So I think for me, that's the low bearing fruit is, is just the acres that I haven't gotten uh, regen on, get like uh, a couple of pastures that are still continuously grazed just because of the location of them. I don't want to keep doing that. I want to switch that into a, a planned grazing system to try to help the land and, and try to grow more forage. And that would be my short-term goal. Uh, developing water it, it has, when I started doing this, I kind of, the, the main block that I started on, I kind of lived beside a marsh and I was doing it during fairly wet years. So I was fairly lucky that there was kind of water everywhere so it was it was easy to to make smaller paddocks because there was just surface water and as we've moved into different just a little drier time the the, the groundwater has dropped through the sand so uh, one thing I did last year is put in some water pipelines which I'm hoping I mean it's a fairly ma major investment but I, I think it's I'm very confident it's going to pay over the long term and so so that would be a, a medium-term goal is to develop the water resources uh, mm -hmm. i think that there's tremendous potential for stacked enterprises um i, I love the idea of of some of these permaculture systems with the perennial agriculture like the the, the fruit and the nut trees like what would i i could convert a tenth or even a fifth of of my acreage to perennial trees it would not even affect the the grazing days whatsoever and, and we could add a huge amount of of uh, production like we we've become so linear in in land management like we're not looking at the, the stack of it like that that we've just like if you think of a continuous grazed pasture you've got like grass and, and, and it's like we want we need that solar panel like the whole sky and, and how much potential we have for bringing in um, solar energy and feeding biology so that would be my my short and medium term goals is developing fence and water good. and now's a good time to do water because uh, pipelines are really cheap this year I bought pipeline for probably half the price of, uh, that I ever have before so that's a good that's a good opportunity Anything else, Connor? No, Did I think you? that's good. That should it be sounds good. good. Thank you. I'm going to back up just a hair here. Um, I promised Lee that I'd answer her question, and I kind of forgot, so I'm going to back up. Um, Lee was asking about, uh, you know, how to do this on a regenerative agriculture on a big scale in the grain industry, because I think she said she likes her wheat. Um, I'm, uh, I love that question because uh, I always talk about Brendan Rocky. He was, uh, we did a video on him a while ago. He was at our Edmonton uh, grazing conference uh, two well a year and a half ago I guess now two years ago and he's a potato farmer out of Colorado and I probably talk about him too much my wife thinks I have a crush on him so just be aware of that um, it, it's an amazing system that he has set up and basically as he has two crops that he grows and everybody thinks right away oh two crop rotation that's terrible but he grows his potatoes one year and it is a mixture of a polyculture of six different types of species potatoes plus five or six other species with it so he's basically growing a, a polyculture okay, which th that's amazing he's got 
every every time he comes up with an issue he finds a biological solution for it so for if a pest shows up he plants another puts another plant in there that uh, attracts the pest to that plant instead of his potatoes right very very interesting presentation um if you go back to the grazing conference from two years ago it's online and his video is recorded and it's free you can go watch it it's a fantastic one so his other uh, alternate uh, crop for his rotation is a 16 species uh, cover crop that he grazes with somebody else's cattle so he doesn't even have the have the cattle he brings somebody else's in and because it's only a two crop rotation but because both of them are polycultures there's no disease pressure there's no need for you know increasing your crop rotation because it's a polyculture and he's alternating them every time and the big thing is he's getting the animals in there and the manure and the urine of those animals the biology that comes in with them is amazing uh, the biology that comes off their their saliva biology that falls off their hair coat it's triggering the soil life biology there's symbiotic relations there so i think that's what our grain farmers need to do right if he can do it with potatoes uh, our grain farmers have no excuse because we can get this system built up. And like Matt said, uh, we talked about a, a graze follow. So instead of the old fashioned summer follow, well, throw in, in your rotation, a year of cover crops that animals graze, right? That's gonna stimulate your soil and kick that biology into gear and maybe you know lower your uh, fertilizer bill next year by half or maybe even more. So that's a big thing for me. Uh, the other thing with, uh, trying to get into the grain is uh, we've got a trial right now with the Gateway Research Organization for kerns of wheat. Now it's really hard to get the hold of the seed right now and hopefully this will grow um, in the future and get more of it but uh, it's a perennial wheat. So you still like your bread well let's throw it in as a hay crop um, let it grow up it's basically uh, derived from western wheatgrass so same family as all the wheatgrasses and uh, let it grow, combine it, and then turn some cattle out to graze it, right? Underseed it with some, you know, mixtures of different legumes. And I can see it growing as a hay field, basically, that you harvest the grain off of it, and then you graze it. And this could go on for 10 years plus. So I think that's a huge opportunity for, you know, uh, everybody who loves bread, but still wants to be regenerative. So um, I'm excited about that. So I had to add that for, for Lee's question. So, but Brenda, go ahead and... Uh, the next question. Okay, I think we've got Nisha on the line here, and we're just, uh, I think she's ready to go. She's unmuted. Nisha, do you have a question for Steve? Yeah, I was, um, I guess mine is not as technical because I'm not a, I'm not a rancher or a farmer, but I'm interested in knowing big picture, what would it take to scale regenerative? And what can people like us do who aren't from the agricultural field to push that forward. So to scale agriculture, like in other words, get it on a, on a large scale that we could feed the world, quote unquote. Yeah, and um, specifically the way I like to think is what is the 20% that can get us 80% of the way? What are the leverage points? Um, because then we can bring in investors, we can bring in brands, we can bring in a lot of people who want to do the right thing to push those, those points, pressure points. Okay, so to get this to large scale, I don't think it's that difficult. We need to be able to prove it, right? So that's what groups like Grey Wooded and, and Gateway Research Organization are trying to do. 
we've got to make it work. Nobody wants to be the first one in to do it. So we've got some amazing people like Brendan Rocky and Gabe Brown who have proven it, they've done it. And honestly, I don't think it's that big of a step. I'm not a grain farmer, so I'm not, uh, not saying that I know all the answers here. I did uh, post a link in chat here for one of my articles because I, I wrote an article that said, pretend I'm a grain farmer, what would I do to be regenerative? So take it with a grain of salt, but that was my two cents on it. But I, I think, you know, the, the argument about we've got to feed the world isn't, isn't real, realistic because the way we're going right now, yes, we're ramping up production and getting more and more of it, but it's going to crash, right? It's not sustainable. It, it, there's no way that we're going to be able to feed the world if it crashes. Whereas if we can back off and do it a, a, in a regenerative manner, we can start getting it into that system where, yeah, we, we can um, feed the world on a long-term basis. Uh, it's gonna come down to um, not necessarily large scale, but maybe medium scale, we can do that. The large scale guys, I think they're gonna be the last ones to switch over because they're, they're so tied into debt. I guess that's the way to see it, right? They can't take a break and, and, and experiment because they're so tied into debt that they have to pay the bills, right? They got all these payments to make. So it's really hard for them to say, well, let's try something new. <laughs> so I think that's going to be the trick. Matt, you got something on that? Um, my question was for grazing. If it's not for the grain farmers, but for um, getting rid of CAFOs and moving to a more regenerative um, meat system, do you think that's easier? It's more profitable? Well, we're going that way. I, okay. I'm not sure how we're going to go faster, but we're growing pretty good right now. Um, over the last 10 years, maybe even five years, I think we've really taken a boost. Uh, our grazing conference two years ago sold out before the early bird deadline. And, you know, years previous to that, we would have trouble, you know, we're uh, a month before the conference and we're worried that we're, are we going to break even? Like, are we going to get enough people? And yeah, now they're just filling up like crazy. So I think we're growing uh, videos like, uh, kiss the ground have come out right that those those type of videos have really kick-started us so yeah I'm I mean we've got 126 people on this call right I mean it's showing me that there's a lot of interest in this so Matt you got something to add to that I think that it's quite possible at scale I'm not sure large-scale agriculture is the sole solution I, I guess I would, I, I kind of yearn for the past. I, I would like to see more people in the rural areas, like growing up in a very rural area. I've, you, you kind of watch the small villages dry up and now some of the smaller towns are, are starting to dry up. I, I think we need more people on the land. So I think it's possible in, in large, in large farms. I mean, you, if, if you're interested in that, you can look at Ian Diane Haggerty in Australia there's, they have some information online if you Google them. And what they're using is a biological stimulant of quorum sensing with their cash cropping. And, and they're using a grazing system with sheep as well. So they're implementing grazing and their cash cropping. And it's over a very large farm. So absolutely, it can be done at scale. And I think that there's quite a few uh, Western Canadian farmers that are starting to do it at scale too. Um, on the cash cropping. Derek Axton would be one that comes to mind that, that is doing it at a fairly decent scale as well. But I, I, I in the same breath, uh, I guess I, I love permaculture and I love local food and people growing their own food. So 
yeah, there's always going to be large farms and there's nothing wrong with having large farms, but I wish that we could convince more small to medium sized producers that maybe if they do some of these systems that they could be a little bit more economically viable and that maybe they will choose to stick it out with the farm or the next generation of that farms decides to come back to the farm rather than, than pursue the off farm career. And, uh, and that, that's one person in the sent me a private message in this chat is how I decided to stop doing veterinary practice and, and to do um, a ranching. And, and I guess I, I was blessed that my parents helped me a lot that I had a multi-generational family farm. So, so that, uh, that helps, but you have to spread a message of hopefulness in agriculture and, and that small to medium sized farms can have a, a good life and a viable economic system. And we don't have to try and be the big guys. We don't need a million dollar drill or combine or whatever these ginormous expensive machines we can do this on a smaller scale so yes regenerative agriculture can be done in scale and, and we should the large guys should be doing it but i think that small producers should pursue it as well i think every lawn should be a garden absolutely you know how much yeah do you know how much money is spent on mowing lawns right i think it's ridiculous everybody makes these lawns look so pretty when they're and you're burning fossil fuels to do it um, you want to feed the world. Why don't we feed ourselves? Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I read a statistic like in the United States, the acreage of lawn is almost the same as the acreage of wheat, like on the whole, like it, it, it's, it's astronomical how large the acreage of lawn is and how it, it's incredible how much food you can grow in a small area. If you use these biological systems, sorry, I didn't interrupt you, Steve. Nope. That's fine. Uh, Brandy, you got another one for us? Yes, Kelly Olson. Kelly, it's your go. Hey, hey, um, I'm just curious um, if we're doing regenerative agriculture and we think we're making some progress, how do we monitor it? I'd like to be able to say, okay, my organic matter has improved, or, you know, we need some kind of a measurement. That's a good comments. That's a good question. Um, quite a few years ago with GROW, we tried to do a soil test. Tried to, we got, tried to get a grant for it. I remember I was involved in it. And I was trying to, I think I call it the soil quality index or something back then. Um, try and take a measurement of your soil that maybe I couldn't compare my soil to your soil, but I could compare my soil to my soil year after year. Right. So you take this test and it would have a everything would be weighted. Uh, the biological side of this test would have a weight, like a percentage of, of the measurement. Like my idea was out of 100, right? So the biology would be worth 20% and the, the chemical factors would be worth 20% and the physical factors 20% and the fertility worth whatever and, and have these different types of measurement tools. And we ended up getting turned down for it. So it didn't happen. But I believe the, what university is it that the, the CARA soil test goes after do you know that one brenda oh i was just sort of kind of talking to somebody else i'm sorry sorry, sorry. uh <laughs> soil lab has a they use a test out of the states anyway it, it came out here about five years ago and it was almost identical to what we were, we were trying to do 15 years ago um, and they were basically breaking it down there the haney test there thanks chuck um the uh yeah the haney test comes out and kind of measures that so um, is that a test or something like that that could measure your soil and compare it year to year? 
uh, it would have to measure the carbon increase. I think it should uh, measure the water holding capacity for sure somehow, the biological life. Is there a way we can get a, a, a base measurement on your land and then see how it's improving over time? Right? So if maybe your biology is coming up and the, the, chemist, the chemical properties of your soil is coming up, but you lost water holding capacity somehow. Right? So one part went down, one went up. And then you can you know, tweak it and play with it and try and bump that up. I don't know, something like that? Any thoughts, Kelly? Uh, just if you're improving your soil, you're increasing the value. So it'd be nice to put a number to it. Yeah. And yeah, I think well, it, would, it, would, it, would, it would make it easier to um, tell the story. Yeah, like I said, if it was that percentage out of 100, right? If, if this year you got uh, 46%, you know, or the index of 46, then next year you were at 54. Well, you improved it overall, but which part of it did you improve? So it would be a way to kind of show that you're, show your improvement, but also show where you need to, you know, bump it up and, you know, I'm low on this one. So how do I address the, you know, say the bio, biology side of it? Um, it might be able to help you that way too. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. I should probably try and start that again. Matt, you got any comments? I'm thinking along the same lines and I've thought about that question a lot too, Kelly. And I just, I, I don't want to sound too lefty with it, but I think it's something that we could, should be getting government involved in. Can we get government funding to monitor this on our, on our lands? Can we create jobs? Like it's a public good, the soil. And I know it's all in private ownership or some is in public ownership, but it's something we should be monitoring and it doesn't have to be very expensive. And I mean, look at all the bloody money we waste on so many things. Why can't we have summer students coming out and for, for you could make it volunteer for the people that choose to have this measured it, it, you're, it, and there should be, it should be multifactorial. I agree with you there. Like it should be organic matter biology um a history of of the of the land use that uh, we're trying to do it on our own land um soil tests is what i've been using the haney soil test that uh, maybe we're not doing as quite a good a job as monitoring as we should and i know we maybe should be doing more i know one of the things holistic management looks at is just the pictures and and the the on the, the like the, the, you put a disc down and then every year or every three years you go down a certain feet of tangent and you take pictures of and you look at the ground cover to see if you have more ground cover so observation um, yeah one of the one of the other ways that i comes to mind is i'm going to say the word i think it's ndvi is it like a satellite thing that they can measure the photosynthetic capacity and that might be simpler than summer students but i i, I think in the short term we need to be doing it ourselves but in the long term, is it something that is a public good? It's like, let's just all work together to, to make this land better. So I think it's worth doing it. Uh, Maybe I've, tissue tests should be added into that, right? Yeah, like a tissue brick, tests. Brick, brick, like brick to, test. mineral cycle, like it should be trying to, trying to show that you're doing the, the five parts or the six parts of the, the soil health principles um, and a demonstration of that. And maybe even cropping history, like cropping rotation. It's like, there's certain things, okay, we know we shouldn't be doing canola, snow, canola, right? If that shows up on your history, 
you're going down in your score because that we know as a general good, that that's not good. Right. And, and not that every perennial system is, is beneficial, but just, just doing some of these rotations in a, in a, in a way that's sustainable or sustainable is not the right word, but where we're breaking the disease cycle and that we're trying to sequester carbon is what I, and build biology. Does that answer Kelly or got some? Nope, sounds good. Awesome. Thanks Kelly. I had um, Brett on the line, Brett McKeeson. Uh, haven't been able to uh, answer whether he wants to go live or not. So I'm going to ask his question for him. And what he was asking about was about soil compaction. Let me just roll back up to the question. I found it here. Cows compact soil. If grazing mm -hmm. in fall before freezing, when tillage is required to seed next year's swath grazing crop, what's the solution? Brett, oh, you got it. Brett, he's there, there now. He is. You've read the question out already. So you got that part. Okay. Um, so compacted soil. One of the things that I've found, it's not necessarily always cows making compacted soil. Um, that seeding in the, in the next spring, uh, I had an experience with it with one fellow one time. It wasn't actually that he, he basically split the field in half. He swath grazed part of it and then he bailed off part of it. And then the next year he went in and seeded it. And the, the part that he swath grazed didn't grow very well. And they were complaining about the compaction and everything. Um, but we kind of did some investigations on it. And we think that actually it wasn't compaction. It was actually uh, the ground was too cold when they seeded it. Because, you know, when you drive across a, 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 uh, you know, an area in the wintertime, it pushes the frost deeper. So having those cows out there packing the snow down on the swath grazing part actually had the frost go down deeper. So when they came back in the spring to seed it, that ground that they swath grazed took longer to warm up. So they seeded it into cold ground on half of it and warmer ground on the non-swath grazed. Um, if he would have waited another week, maybe it would have come up great. So it's not necessarily always compaction. It could be ground temperature or something else as well. But for me, the only solution, the, you know, if somebody says something's compacted or uh, it's root systems, right? Uh, equipment can't fix what equipment caused. I think it's more the plant is what has to fix compacted soil. Um, not equipment, not cattle, not anything else. It's the plant root systems that are going to do it. Can I expand my question a little bit further? Yes, you bet. Um, so we've been doing more and more swath grazing, corn grazing. Um, we, we planted the cocktail with the oats for swath grazing, but because as we are, we have to swath late in the fall to keep that, that crop in as best condition as possible for winter grazing, that, that polyculture, the, uh, the cover crop doesn't really have a chance to grow because it's swathed often in September. What's uh, any thoughts or ideas about trying to get more of a polyculture like you guys are talking about regenerative grazing without the, because you, you got to pay for the seed, there's extra costs there. You're not necessarily getting full benefit from that cover crop. Okay, Matt, you want to tackle that one? I'm just going to briefly mention the compaction. There's two things that come to mind. The first thing, if the annual cropland isn't in condition to take cows, if it's a little bit wet, I don't put them out there. Like where, where we do it on annual cropland, it's, it's a clay loam soil, and it's a little bit on the clay side. It will compact. If it's mucky, I will leave them on perennial. Like you should be, like in, in my mind, for my system, I want to manage the perennials that the cattle 
are on stockpile perennials until we're good and froze. So, so that's like step one, try to keep them on the perennials. If you must go on to the annuals, what I would suggest, make a sacrifice alley, take it 30 feet. You're talking like a quarter section type field. Like, is that the acreage you're dealing with? About uh, so far 50 to 70 acre paddocks. Okay, so if you're doing like, I'll just say an 80. Like if you're doing an 80 acre field, we deal with those sizes of field lots. Go along one perimeter fence, go 30 feet out, take one wire and go the whole length of the field. Now you've got a sacrifice alley. They're going to pack that alley. Now on your, you do strip grazing and do short term high intensity. If you find the cattle are starting to compact it, move them. Don't leave them there to let them compact. Move the cattle to the next strip. Don't leave, the compaction is more a, a function of time than the animals themselves, unless it's wet. And if it's wet, I really, like I, I wouldn't put them on cropland if it's wet. I would put them onto the, the perennials. Even if you have to feed for a bit until the land freezes or dries, in my experience. Now on the, on the cover crops, I absolutely do think that they pay because they balance your ration. And what you wanna do when you're designing these cover crops is you wanna grow species that are going to accomplish the goals of what you wanna change in your field. You have to first start off with your resource concern. What is the limiting factor on this 70 acres that is causing me not to make the most most photosynthetic capacity, most biomass production, most whatever your goal is, then you have to pick your species of your cover crop based on what you're trying to accomplish. And you can, there's a lot of resources for that online. One fellow that just come out with a book is Kevin Elmy. He, uh, Cover Cropping in Western Canada. It's a really short book and it's, it's almost like a reference book. And there's, it explains a lot of the reasons why, why each species is used. But I think we're good. we see a huge benefit from the diversity of the roots, and 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 that's the reason to grow the the covers. Does that? Do you have any follow up questions? Does that make sense? Yeah, I have a follow up. Um, because we're so should should we be using zero tillage to put in our perennials, our oats, our barley for the swath grazing crop? Because it, with corn, you have to till it right up because there's too much residue from a previous corn crop. What environment are you in? Like, where are you located? Um, Northeast Alberta, Vilna, St. Paul, Bonneville. Okay. What, we're, what we've done recently, and I've got it custom seeded I, with my, my neighbor did it for me, and he's a grain farmer, and he has a disc drill. And he zero-tilled through corn trash, like fairly heavy corn grazing trash, no tillage, no harrowing, just direct seeded with a no-till disc drill. To me, that's into corn stubble. Yes, like what the residue that works you graze corn. Okay, so a rotation is a good idea. Would might work. Well, I think you. I mean, yeah, you should rotate the crop. Like, I mean, I, I think you can do, you can do corn on corn once or twice, but then you should rotate to something else in the rotation. And I think you could, if you have a, a, a true no-till seeding system, whether it's a planter or, or an air seeder or drill, I think you can, you can seed through corn stalks and establish a corn crop 
again in the same field, it's definitely possible. No, that's giving me lots of good ideas is we did invest in a zero till disc drill last year. Okay, so I mean- it well it, with uh, our old hay fields, seeding oats directly in. Yeah, I mean, you have the machine, so no-till drill should be able to seed through corn stalks without okay. tilling. I'd like to add to that. Um, when I was up a couple of years ago at Enpera, North Peace Supplied Research Associations, I would say something like that, um, they were doing corn as polycultures. And I know when I've asked questions before at uh, seminars where they're talking about grazing corn is that it, right away they say, well, don't include corn in a polyculture. But um, I was up there and I've, I saw it. They had legumes growing underneath with the corn and it looked fantastic. So uh, I would definitely still that polyculture root systems is way more beneficial to your soil, soil than anything else. So um, that's my two bits on it. So tillage is we got to get away from tillage then as much as we can is my yeah. opinion yeah tillage is yeah. the death of our water cycle so um you know I'm, anytime we till we lose our roots yeah and i'm i'm not naive i, I know we're not going to get rid of it completely i mean i'd love to see it gone completely but i know it's not going to happen um but if we're trying to build our water system cycle back up i mean and that's to me the whole the whole basis behind climate change um it's our water cycle it, it affects everything and if we've screwed it up, we, we got to repair it. So, okay, good. Brenda, you got another one for us? And thanks, Nisha Brad. What, Nisha, Great, thanks. Pardon me, Nisha's going to come back with another question for you. And uh, and I think it's a good one. I, 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 I think you'll appreciate it. Okay. Nisha, um, you're on. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't want to take over because if there's other people who want to ask instead. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, second. Yeah, so what is the biggest challenge both of you face or in general that you see other ranchers face? I'd be curious to know if there's any challenges or if you figured it out and specifically interested in the economic side because the more profitable y'all are, the more profitable, uh, the more interested people will be in, in moving this way. Okay, I would say my biggest challenge to managing regeneratively is actually the competition for land, right? Like everybody wants land. And then as the, the grain industry, actually it really changed in 2003, 2004, we had BSE hit in 203. And uh, all of a sudden there was lots of land available and I grew, right? Uh, lots of farmers quit. And then in 207, they opened up the uh, ethanol industry in, in the US. And that drastically gave a big boost to the Canadian uh, grain industry. And all of a sudden land was, you know, everybody was bidding more for land, renting more land, buying more land. And uh, so yeah, land has been my biggest restraint is, is uh, the competition for land rent and, and just management of it. So Matt, what was your biggest issue? So my biggest limitation has been time and, and, and maybe that, uh, it, I could expand on that. Maybe it's been management. It's too too much time spent doing the ten dollar an hour jobs, and not enough time doing the five hundred dollar. Because probably that could be solved by getting the right people in place. When you're doing the, it, it's easy to just put thirty cows on a quarter section in May and not deal with them until October. That's it's it takes no time. But to build fences, it takes time and and. and it, there's major, major benefits to it, but when 
when you're starting off on an operation that was doing a lot of conventional grazing, that infrastructure doesn't just go up overnight. It takes, it takes time away from what you're already doing. So that has been my biggest limitation is just, is trying to find the time to, to do everything. So, like, um, like, yeah, sorry. I'd like to add to that, Matt, cause that's kind of our topic of our uh, evening tonight. Um, it's a mindset mm -hmm. change. One of the, uh, most instrumental people in my, my life or my business was uh, um, Don Campbell. And he has a quote, something, I'm going to misquote it here, but I, it's close to it, is we, we spend too much time working. We don't have enough time to think. And the more time we have to think, the, the, you know, the better we do with our, our businesses, right? So if we're, we're always working on the farm, we don't have enough time to be managing the farm. I think that's the point behind it. So that's our uh, mindset come again. That's what Matt just explained. So I have two follow-ups. Uh, one is on the time issue. Have y'all connected? There's someone on this call uh, that goes by young agrarians and different young farmer groups. I see a big potential in leveraging groups like that uh, to do some of the chores, I guess, that you don't want to do because they'd want to learn. And then the second, and I'm sure you're doing that, but I'm just wondering if there's more uh, linkages needed uh, or resources. And then the second part is, I, uh, Stephen, I sent you the text about VENS, which is this virtual fencing company that allows you to use GPS and you can just move the fences virtually. And I think it's done with collars or something. I'm just curious if that would help also in giving you all some time back or it's just too much technology. Yes, uh, first part, yes, Young Agrarians, they're a great group here in Alberta. I mean, there's other groups around as well. Um, Dana from Young Agrarians was actually our host here a couple of weeks ago. So yes, we definitely encourage that, getting the young people involved and, and the, the hardest part is the transition from the last generation to the new generation. So. Groups like Young Agrarians are really doing a wonderful thing with that. Um, second part of that was the collars. I think in Canada, it's only allowed, or they only have it in goat herds and quite expensive now of what I heard. Uh, Gateway Research Organization, we're trying to get a grant to be able to get a, a demo of that. So we've got a small goat herd that we have some plans for with some uh, collars. So that would be interesting. Um, last week we talked about uh, uh, the topic was um, ranching like a 12 year old. Well, that's trying to figure out ways to make your farm have less labor was really what we were doing. And that's exactly what it is. Labor is a huge issue. So, uh, and it's a huge cost that a lot of people don't understand. So um, yes, we definitely got to get that labor component down. So we have more time to, you know, manage the business instead of just working in it. So Laurel uh, was asking an interesting question a while back that she didn't necessarily want to share, but I'm going to plop it out there for you. Is anyone doing plant sap analysis on perennial forage crops? Okay. Um, Matt, you want to tackle that one? Have you done any even bricks testing or anything like that? We, we actually did saps this year for the first time and it's a cool thing to do. The next thing you get these taps and you got to try and figure out what it means and then what you can do to, to, uh, it's like being a vet and you get a blood test. It's like, okay, well, that's nice, but now I have to tell you what this means. So you got to <laughs> think about it and, and try to decide what, what you've done to create this. And, um, we did some saps on the annuals 
we did it on the perennials too. One of the things we found a micro that was fairly low and then we were able to correlate that with, we had, we had low copper in our forage, which, which is common in Western Canada. So that, that's something I, I think we can use these saps to not sure that we, there maybe is a way to get copper in through. I mean, if you, Okay, this is going to open up a whole bag of worms. <laughs> you look at some of what Nicole Masters talks about, some of these biological stimulants in the foliars and the quorum sensing products of vermicast and applying micros with those. I think that there's potential with that. I mean, it's, it's a new area. I mean, I think that if you're going to do that, you definitely want to talk to somebody that, that knows about it, that, that has done it before. But I, th I think that... For specific deficiencies, if you are doing like a, a total nutrient extract on your land, your land is deficient in certain areas. I think there's places for stuff like that. Um, certainly, if, if not applying it foliarly to the forage, applying it to the as a supplement to the animals through a mineral program is, is absolutely essential. So it gives you an idea of of the nutrition of the plant. If it's high in certain things or if it's low in certain things, you need to, you could supplement that. So that's a benefit of sap. Uh, where I was more interested in it, we kind of did it in the perennials as a, just to see what we've got. So, so I still haven't figured out how I'm gonna use that information other than supplementing minerals. Where I was curious about it is in the annuals and in the corn hairy vetch field we aren't using recommended rates of fertility for our, our production. Like if I was to say, I'm going to grow a crop of corn and I phone the, the guy at the, the fertilizer store, how much fertilizer do I need? And he tells me what I need. That's not how much I use because I believe in the biological system. <laughs> and, and I want to try and slowly wean myself off these synthetics. So what I... What I did with the saps is, is you could figure out if that plant is deficient in certain nutrients. And luckily the plant wasn't. So I guess the, the biology was doing its thing for that corn and it wasn't deficient in nitrogen or potassium or phosphorus, which is the, the main applied nutrients that I was most curious in. We also did a test on the cover crop and the cover crop had nutrients. Well, the lady at the lab, she didn't really know how describe it because they're used to describing monocultures right so if you chop up 12 species of plants and throw them in a bag and you say it's a cover crop they're like well do i use the corn chart or do i use the barley chart or or do i what 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 is this so they but the good news is the minerals were through the roof so i mean i'll just say that's the biology right so um knowledge is power and i think saps have a place but i've done it once and I am not an agronomist, so I don't know, but uh, I'm learning. And there's people that do know. Uh, one person that you could, you could find a wealth of information from is John Kempf. And he runs Advancing Eco Agriculture. Uh, they run a podcast. And there's been some great speakers on there. He's got a, a couple excellent ones. One with Rick Haney, which is the, the fellow from Texas, uh, doctor that developed the, the, the soil test that talks about organic uh, carbon and nitrogen that Steve referenced earlier. So it's a different type of soil testing. Uh, and then there's another podcast with Dwayne Beck, who's a 
a wealth of information about uh, annual cropping systems and soil health. Um, so, and John Kempf is, is they, he does a consulting business and looks at saps. So th there might be some information there if you dig, but I, I think it's something to look at. I mean, especially if you're in a, if you're like, I, we've talked a lot about annuals tonight, which is interesting because I, my farm is 98% perennials. So we, <laughs> I, I, I dabble in the annuals and we've had good luck with them for the most part. We've had our learning mistakes too, but um, the, the perennials is my thing. Um, but the, if you are growing a lot of annuals and you're buying like big time money of inputs, you should be doing saps, do saps. Like it costs me 400 bucks. Like what does it cost to get a semi load of fertilizer? Like it's probably, I don't know. I don't even, you know, I don't even know a what lot. it costs. A, a lot. lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah if you're growing if you're buying inputs i would be looking at saps it, and maybe we should be doing them more in our, on our perennial systems and the the reason i'm interested in the coal masters type stuff with the with the saps and the, we have some very very degraded grasslands and i'm like there's there's jump starts out there like ultra high density grazing bale grazing that type of thing but some of these foliars i think they cannot be applied over a large area and maybe get a little bit of a biological stimulus out of them for um, a fairly low cost. So that's my, sorry, long answer. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. I've got one uh, idea here. We're, we're gonna, not that we've got an off topic at all. We have the whole night basically. Um, I'm gonna bring back one quote that I heard from a while ago. Um, one of the very first things that got me into this regenerative field is uh, Alan Savory. I went to a conference back in, I'm going to say 1996 or 1997, somewhere in there. And I heard Alan Savory uh, speak and he talked about how we're, we're causing droughts. It's our management that's causing droughts. And, you know, all my life I'd been told that it's the drought. Uh, his, his basic quote is that droughts do not cause bare soil. It's bare soil that causes droughts. Okay, that was a totally abstract thought to me because, you know, everybody always blames, well, the drought, the, you know, my, my pastures look terrible because we had a drought, right? There's no rain. So, you know, it's, that's the reason, right? They're blaming the rainfall. When in reality, if you, if you understand and learn the water cycle, it's actually the, the bare soil that's damaging the water cycle, which in, on a global scale or a, a large area scale is causing the drought. Okay, so it's a complete switch in mindset on how you think about it so um i just thought i'd bring that up as a another aha moment that i had when i was uh, uh very young tr trying to get into this system of of instead of always thinking what you know we're, we're taught or we're trained in university or even you know from our peers in in agriculture um it's a totally different mindset you have to look at things differently so um just a thought to get some stimulation out there. Brenda, did you find another question for us? Oh, I've got a couple. I've got them lined up oh, now. Brian, oh, Brian, Brian English wants to ask you a question about uh, handheld spectrometers. I'm just going to get him back on the line here. There we There, he found there we are. Right, we got him. <laughs> okay. Uh, my question, um, a couple of years back in uh, 2019, I, I believe it was down in Bismarck, I, I heard Dan Kidrich speak about uh, nutrient density. And he had an organization formed that they put a bunch of money into a handheld spectrometer to determine the 
the nutritional density of the foods that are in the grocery stores. And he said that it would only be pennies in order to uh, have it implemented into cell phones. And eventually people will be able to um, go into the grocery store and scan uh, fruit or vegetables or, or meat and find out what the density is. And he said that would drive um, the marketplace. If you've got high density food, it would sell better than the poor quality. So I'm thinking about regenerative agriculture practices. Surely we must be growing better food. And this is a, a way to measure that. Um, has anyone seen or heard anything about, is this technology moving ahead? Um, have you guys heard anything about that? Uh, I'm basically in the same boat you are, Brian. I've heard of that. I've heard people talk about it, but I've never seen anything. Um, maybe someday it'll be up and running that I, but I haven't seen it. My one big fear is that if we get this in place and all of a sudden we can measure this, some big company is going to invent some chemical to spray on the food that's going to alter the reading and make it look good. Okay. Right? Like somebody's going to invent that. I just know it. Um, and then it's going to be, in my opinion, obsolete. Like it just the way agriculture goes is that's what they're going to do. Someone's going to figure out a way to, you know, they've made, figured out how to make food taste better. They've figured out how to make it look better. Uh, they change the color, they change everything. So I'm sure they can change how, uh, some type of device reads reads the right i don't know so i, yes, I think it was gabe, it was gabe brown who said uh you can eat an orange and then you find out that there's no vitamin c in it and he says well why on earth would you even eat an orange and and yeah. find out that you're getting no vitamin c so i went to my kids science fair a couple of years ago in and they they moved up into the next level right they, they they won their science fair so they moved into the edmonton science fair so we went into that and it was all these science fair kids all over the place and it was kind of a zoo and uh it was one place that i stopped there was a this two young girls that had this science fair you had to sit down in the chair and they blindfolded you and then they let you smell things and you had to tell them which was the real one and which was the fake one and yeah, the majority of the time, like they, in their experiment, they proved the majority of the time people believed that the fake one was the real one because mm -hmm. that's what they'd smell. Like, for example, they had a real orange and they had a, I don't know, a fake, it wasn't a fake orange, but like the little orange cup things that they, they add in the, the smell and the flavor and all the chemicals to it to make it smell like an orange. Well, you know, I think 75 or 80 to 90% of the people always picked the fake one as it was the real one. And so it's just this, how we, what do they call it? The Dorito effect, right? Yeah. They, they added stuff in there. Yeah, there you go. Um, the, the, we call it the orange effect, right? The flavor isn't necessarily the real thing anymore because we're, we're so accustomed to the fake stuff. So that, I, I got, think. I got to, I got to hold the spectrometer. Um, they, <laughs> like they had about 600 of them already produced, mm -hmm. but you could buy one and they were about $800. But um, he said the technology's there. It's just they just have to move it along. I just wondered if anything's moved since. I mean, it's getting in a year and a half since I heard that um, yeah. speech. It was a good. It was a good lesson to learn. I just thought it'd be moving quicker. But yeah, Matt, you know anything about that? Have you heard them? Uh, I'm pretty well in the same boat. I, I think you can do bricks like on fresh food. Like you can. 
just straight up measure of bricks with the refractometer will give you some indication. I think they moved like in, they did kale. Um, I think they did cabbage and carrots and they brought in samples from all, all around North America. So he said it costs about a million to a million and a half to get enough data in order to just do one vegetable. And they were looking to move out into red meats as well, but you know, they had to raise a million dollars for each category. Did they, did they actually find a food value in kale? Well, yeah, like who wants to buy kale? But <laughs> I love kale. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I had to. I, I grow kale for my cows, but that, you know. <laughs> All right, Brenda, you got another one for us? Thanks, yes. Brian. Okay, yes, thanks. younger cattle company, they're asking about the transition from conventional to regenerative farming. Ah, here he is. She is. <laughs> Thanks, Brenda. My pleasure. Who are we speaking to? Uh, this is Cheyenne. Oh yeah, hi Cheyenne. I know you. <laughs> How's it going? Good. Um, so we're just just kind of wondering if you guys had any um, like good tips or anything. We took over my grandpa's farm um, a few years ago, and we're just trying to change over to regen. We've been doing lots of intensive grazing and lots of cross fencing and all that good stuff. Um, we've tried a few cocktail crops, um, but we have this problem where everything was so depleted when we got here that um, that we feel like when we when we try all these new things that it doesn't work because we're already, you know what I mean? Like we're kind of depleted to start with. Um, and so I just wondered if you had any tips on the, like kind of that transition phase of going from conventional to regen um, if there's anything maybe we're missing that we should be trying. I think Matt already had a couple of comments there. What did you call it? The kickstart or the, the boost? Um, one would be bale grazing. Um, the other one is getting animals out there and doing high stock density. Uh, for me, one of the most important things is to get the bio biology going, right? And that comes from the livestock. So whatever land you have, you need to get livestock out on it, whether you're grazing on it or feeding on it or... We need to recycle the nutrients and follow those principles. So do you have a kickstart? Um, yeah, there's ways of doing it faster, but uh, maybe Matt can enlighten you on some of those. He's done that quite a bit, I think. Um, well, the, the first comment that I would have is, is you're, you're only comparing to yourself. Don't worry about what the neighbor has on his land. Don't worry about how beautiful Steve's land is that he's been working on for 20 years. Don't worry about what Gabe Brown's doing. That took me a long time to figure that out. Like part of the regenerative mindset is that regenerative agriculture is kind of a journey. Like you don't just read one book and, and become a regenerative farmer. You don't listen to one podcast and become a regenerative farmer. It's a, it's a process and, and it's multifactorial. So except tonight. And everybody's regenerative after tonight, right? Yeah. Just, just like, <laughs> <laughs> look into my eyes and you'll become a regenerative farmer. <laughs> no, the, uh, sorry, the, so kickstart. Okay. Where are you located? Like what, what are you? We're central Alberta. Okay. So are you, is your, your black soil zone? Um, like what's your, like, like. That's behind me here. East central. East Central, so like near, or like an hour east of Stetler. So you're out in Glacial Kill. Gravelly? No, not really gravelly, kind of more brown. 
Okay. Okay. Like so desert. Do you have a lot yeah. of gumbo? Yeah, desert and gumbo. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> It can be done there. It can be done anywhere. Like, I mean, if you if you don't think it can be done there, go on YouTube and type in Jeff Lawton greening the desert and look at what Jeff Lawton did to make the desert grow. I mean, he went down to the Dead Sea on salt desert and he brought it back to life. Anything, any soil, any texture can be brought back to life. So, I mean, things you can do, importing nutrients through bale grazing, high stock density grazing, trying to get more diversity of plant species, uh, diversity of animal species. It, it takes time. Like, and and we, we've got, there's one piece of land I've been working on. It's 480 acres. It's like, it's three quarters. When my dad bought it in, in the early 1990s, it was completely blown out sea horizon. Like there's just no topsoil. It's just sea horizon, but we're, we're slowly getting the plants growing back in. Bale grazing has helped a lot. Um, deferred, like stockpile grazing, allowing the plants to, to seed out and then hitting them with high density has helped. Um, anything you can do, if you have, like if your organic matter is low and you have fairly um, like more parenting material, like if you don't have a nice loam, so if you've got more of a clay or a sand, like a, a pure, like you don't have that nice black soil, the, the, the better your land is, the faster it will turn around with regen. That's that's no doubt. Like where, where I grew up, where we have clay loam soils, the things you can do, it's so much faster than if you're working on a, a piece that's that's extremely degraded. So, and, and there's everybody has different mindsets on what you can do. I I maybe did it. I went after the worst piece first, and, and I went after the the absolute blowout sand spots, and I started bale grazing on them. Now, if you listen to some people looking back, some people will suggest going after your best spots first to try to increase the production there. Like if it depends what your what your goal is. If if you're trying to to turn it around financially quickly. I would try and regenerate the best spot. So that would be like your, your side hills where you do have a little bit more uh, topsoil hitting them with the bale grazing. You're going to get more bang for your buck versus if you put it on a like a 1% organic matter um, clay pan, that's not going to turn around as fast as if you put it on a, on a side hope with some, um, uh, a bit of topsoil there already. Uh, do you have any follow-up? Does that make sense? Yep. But one of the things I'd add to that is a lot of people will spend 10 to 20 to $30,000 a year on fertilizer. What about spending 10 to 20 to $30,000 a year on bringing in carbon? Um, a quick example is I just tried, there was a post on uh, Facebook that came along that somebody was giving away three-year-old hay. They just wanted it gone. I'm like, how close is it? <laughs> To me, that's the fertilizer I want to buy. I'd bring it in, throw it out on the hills, on the side hills, like Matt was saying, and just let the cows push it around, right? And that's going to build the water holding capacity. And really, that's in my, in my environment, that's what I need. More than I need fertility, I need water holding capacity. So uh, if you're going to spend money on bringing something in, we might as well bring it in, you know, get, get the water holding capacity. So good, good to go. The other thing, too, if you're working with severely degraded soil, minerals for the cattle like if, if the mineral cycles vary 
very deficient, make sure you're getting the mineral into the cattle because if the mineral cycle is not working, the forage won't have the same minerals as if you're working on a better soil. So that's, and then if you're feeding it to them, whatever's excess is going to cycle back through and it'll help. Yeah, we do a, we do a custom mineral program usually, so. Okay, thank you. Okay, Brenda, last okay, question. Okay. Your last question is Dana Penrice from Young Agrarians about transitioning from generations. Here we go, okay. Hi guys, I was gonna uh, build on your joke and say don't stare into this guy's eyes too much, you might go backwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask Matt about the mindset, the difference in the mindset between you and the generation above you and uh, how you've navigated that and how that's kind of affected your decision-making on the farm. You're basically saying how to deal with your, fa your father. <laughs> yeah. The F I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely going to leave that one to Matt because my father still doesn't do anything that I teach. So <laughs> go ahead, Matt. <laughs> this is a long like how many how much time do you have um, you have to be patient and and you you have to you have to sell it like you have to i'm trying to think of how we got started with it all how did he let you change well I, I guess if i like my parents were already pro grass like they, they were pro um, leaving marginal land in grass so so like I didn't have any any struggle there of if, if land is is boggy or or if it's a uh, very high slope or if it's sloughy or super sandy leaving it in grass um, that was that they were already doing that so so that like on the acres that were there they, they weren't degraded because they were already had the right land use management for cattle on those acres so that that, that helps um i shared a lot of books has been one thing that i did any book that i read that was easy to read i would give it like my parents both like reading so dad's read a lot um i convinced dad to come to the regen egg conference the mfga put on in brandon so that was good and he, he got to listen to a few of the speakers there so he he learned a bit there uh, there's days it's hard though. Like I've made mistakes when I did it. One of the biggest mistakes that I made is trying to graze stockpile without enough supplement, trying to like, and the, he, I'll give them credit. They kind of watched me make a couple mistakes and, and they didn't say too much and they let me learn from it. So, uh, they have been pretty good. Um, communication is huge. In, in family and in any relationship, you just have to communicate. And, and I don't know, I think you got to almost guilt trip a bit too, though. Like every parent that is any kind of a parent wants their kids to take over the farm, right? That That's their deep down desire in their heart of hearts. So you, you have to kind of, well, this is kind of where I think we need to go to position ourselves for the future and, and, plant I don't know that that movie that inception movie where you they travel back into somebody's mind and plant the idea <laughs> you kind of gotta plant the seed of regenerative egg and then just water it with the watering can and the next time put a little bit of vermicompost in the water and water it a little more and and just 
tend to the little growing idea, but it, it takes mindset and communication. I wish I had a better answer for you than that. Um, it might come to me. What do you think, Steve? I can't help you very much. My dad thinks I'm a trader and, uh, all of the family farmland is rented out to a grain farmer. <laughs> so I can't even convince them to at least put it down to hay uh, to get it in. So yeah, I've, I'm not farming on the family farm because of that. So uh, the bright side to that, um, the fact that we didn't, we quit farming, we were farming together for two years and it wasn't working. Uh, probably the best decision I ever made because now we get along, right? And to me, that's more important that my dad likes it when I come down to visit because at the time it was not good. So probably the best decision I ever did was I moved away. And now we, as a personal, you know, human resources part, we get along great. So. Well, one thing I, sh I should add is I didn't just show up at my parents' home farm and start doing it in their yard. First thing I, like I bought my own land and I started working on my own and it, it is 20 miles away. So it, it's the same operation but it's kind of its own little block. And I don't think it necessarily needs to be that far away, but I think that has some power. It's like, okay, these are gonna be my acres and, and, and I'm gonna to get to prove my concepts on these acres. Now, whether that's through um, cover cropping or whether it's through, um, you know, holistic plant grazing, or if you're gonna plant some uh, market garden or, or perennial trees or whatever you wanna do differently, it's like, these are my acres. I can manage them how I want. And then we can, you know, have the meeting at the end of the year and compare who did better this year. And, and if we made mistakes, what can we learn from them? And then as you're proving it, there should be some type of communication that says, this is how we want to run the farm. We want to run the farm. We're going to expand this over the entire land base over X amount of years. And and I think that needs to be, in some cases, that maybe needs to be in writing. And, I, and I, I've talked to a few people that have, they're like ready to throw the cards. Like I, I'm, and, and, and maybe in some cases, that's the thing you should do is just move. Like if, 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 if it doesn't, if it's not going to work, leave. But the, I think that there's a lot of benefit in, in, building and sustaining these multi-generational farms. And I think everyone should try really hard to do that. I think leaving should be the like low down the list. Like you should try and, and keep it going. Um, but communication I think is key. And, and you got to take that on yourself. It's like, if these are going to be my acres, I'm not going to F it up. Like I, this has to work. Like I'm going to do my research. I'm going to read all the books I can learn. Okay, this is the cover crops that have worked in our area, or I know what my soil resource problem is, and this is what I know has worked in this area for other people. Um, like bale grazing, for example, is like one of the like no brainers. I don't understand why more people won't do it. Like you could do it on basically any farm in Western Canada, and it would help the farm. So. It, it, that's one thing I don't see how anybody could if you do the bell grazing, grazing properly and you and you show that it how somebody cannot see it work thanks guys all right okay uh we are past 7 30 that's our timeline that we're supposed to shut this down at so um, I'm not going to close the whole thing down just so you know there's still lots of time for networking but I'd like to officially close the uh evening out uh thank you very much Matt for all your insights 
Um, you are welcome to stick around and chat. If you've got to go, we perfectly understand that. Uh, but really appreciate all the knowledge and information you gave us here. And uh, thanks to Brenda for hosting um, the Grey Wooded Forge Association. Or, yeah, sorry, Grey Wood. What am I? What are you? I'm, I'm lost. I am the business manager at Grey Wooded Forge Association. Yes, Grey Wooded Forge Association. Number of, we had about eight, eight of our members joined us tonight. Uh, some of them have gone already, but um, some of them are left. And that includes Eula, Deb, Ken, Ron, Gill, and Sandy. Thanks. Thanks for coming along. <laughs>